2009, November 4th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 29, The Children of Saturn. Well, yesterday we learned about an unlikely place for, for life, namely the seas under like, underneath Europa. If you'd asked anyone years, decade ago, or even less, where you would look for life in the solar system, they would have said, yeah, probably Mars, that's about the best bet. And no one else would have basically considered the question further. But it's fairly clear that there are conditions within the solar system where we can have sources of heat that are not the sun. We can have places where there is abundant liquid water, abundant organics, and those are the raw pieces we need for life. And so finding them on Europa, in fact, if I was, like I said, if I was going to be betting money, I would... I wouldn't maybe bet the house, maybe I'd bet the car because I might like to get a new car one of these days, that there's actually, we're actually going to find life in the solar system. We're going to find it on Europa if we're going to find it anywhere beyond the Earth. And I think that's a true statement. I think the consensus on that and the excitement about that's been building. And that's why the NASA missions have gotten so much attention for going back to Jupiter, going to Europa. And we'll, I hope that they will get enough priority and they're going to be international missions that maybe, in fact, we have a good chance of actually finding something. Well, in terms of the likely or unlikely places to look for life, if Jupiter was out, Saturn, which is two times further away than Jupiter in round numbers, seemed even more out, four times less sunlight than, than you get at Jupiter even. A hundred times less, almost, sunlight than you get on the Earth. So this is not a place where you're going to expect abundant sunlight. It's a place of frozen ices and gases. But in fact, as we're going to see today, perhaps even two, the children of Saturn, carry some surprises for us. So today we're going to be looking at the moons of Saturn. In particular, we're going to be concentrating on two of the moons of Saturn, Enceladus and Titan. Saturn has a system of 61 moons, one giant moon, Titan, that has an atmosphere. The rest are going to be a mix of spherical and irregular satellites made mostly of ice and rock. They're going to be fairly low-density things, with some interesting exceptions. Of these two, Enceladus is the brightest body in the solar system. It's covered by very fresh, bright ices and has spectacular ice geysers, ice fountains coming off of, the, uh, off of the body of the planet. The cause of these ice fountains, as we're going to see, is once again tidal heating and a little bit of assist from radioactive decay, heating the interior of Enceladus to the point that water can become liquid. And it hints that the data that's been collected and still an ongoing effort is beginning to show signs that we may be able to interpret what we're seeing going on in Enceladus as a very large amount of subsurface liquid water. So once again, we're seeing this effect of liquid water in the presence of a tidally heated body that may be an important clue for where we might want to go looking for life. We're then going to turn to the moon Titan. Titan is the largest moon in the solar system, I mean, one of the largest moons in the solar system, not the largest, certainly the largest moon of Saturn. It's unique in the solar system in that it is the only moon that has a heavy, substantial atmosphere around it. It's mostly a nitrogen and methane atmosphere. It has weather, and it even has lakes of liquid methane and ethane, as we're going to see. The conditions on Titan are probably not what we would guess for life. It's a very cold place. Liquid methane and liquid ethane are probably not what you want to basically do organic chemistry in. But we should keep an open mind about that. But in fact, Titan may be interesting because its conditions may be what people like to refer to as prebiotic. It's a highly enriched organic environment without life. It's before life would have emerged. And it may, in fact, be an interesting experimental model for what the Earth was like before life emerged there. However, it's Enceladus that may in fact have just simply elevated itself to the position of being a place that we want to go back to and look at more closely as a possible abode of life, although the problems on Enceladus are much more challenging than the problems on Europa. So today we're going to be looking at the children of Saturn. Now, 
Your notes that you have are a subset of the pictures I'm going to be showing today. I wanted to keep them small. I want to concentrate in particular on this particular picture, and I'm going to to kill the lights on it. This is a beautiful montage of the planet Saturn taken by the Cassini orbiter a couple of years ago. It's taken with the, with the, from the backside. So the Saturn is between us and the Sun. And the Sun is now backlighting the planet and backlighting this beautiful system of rings. The bright rings you always are used to seeing in the, uh, in the photographs of Saturn are the bright regions here I'm outlining with my laser. This faint outer ring is called the E-ring. It's very difficult to see from ground-based telescopes, but it appears beautifully backlit in this picture. And I want to call your attention to one little portion of this picture right here. You may be able to see it at the end of my finger. It's a little tiny dot some of you in the front row can see. Let me blow it up a little bit so we can zoom in on that dot. That's the Earth. This is viewing the Earth back through the rings of Saturn from a perspective of of more than a billion kilometers away. This is, to my mind, one of the most stunningly beautiful pictures ever taken. It is also, in that sense, the presence of the Earth seen through these rings is a perspective that we've been able to achieve through uh, many years of work in in space exploration. It really speaks to the perspective we're beginning to gain on our own home in the universe when we look back upon the Earth and it's barely visible as a tiny blue dot in the darkness of space. Saturn is the other of the two giant gas planets of the solar system. It is attended by a system of 61 moons. It has only one giant moon, Titan, somewhat aptly named, and has 60 smaller moons. The ranges of these smaller moons is between 1 and 150 kilometers in diameter. There are probably many other smaller moons and a few that we haven't discovered yet. Uh, The number keeps getting bigger every year. As Cassini images more of the Saturnian system, we find new little moonlets. And of course, I'm leaving out of this the tiny moonlets that make up the vast ring systems of Saturn. What's interesting about these smaller moons, Titan we'll come back to in a bit, is if they're larger than about 300 kilometers in diameter, they're spherical in shape. Probably partially or maybe even fully differentiated. The partial is probably more correct. Those that are less than 300 kilometers in diameter are all irregular. They're kind of you know potato-shaped or odd sort of funky-looking shapes. This is telling us something interesting. It's part of a piece of when we look now at the density of these bodies. We measured the masses with, with spacecraft passages. We measured the radius by... The, you know, again, from the photographs we take from the, from the spacecraft. And we divide the mass by the volume, and we get densities between 0.3 and 1.5 grams per cc. Although I will point out that at least one of these, Enceladus, has been revised upwards with, because of recent studies. This kind of density is getting you into a rock and ice, but probably mo- or mostly ice mixture. Remember that 3 to 5 grams per cc was rock and iron, One gram per cc is kind of like gas giants, and in between those, you're looking at a kind of a gas or rock and ice mixture. So most of these things are going to be mixes of rock and ice, but mostly kind of leaning towards the ice side, and some of them have densities of 0.3 grams per cc, which is way less dense than water. Those may, in fact, be captured comets. Those things may basically be just dirty snowballs, which are porous and, and full of holes like a Swiss cheese. Now, what's interesting is a lot of them, when you look at them close up, have very ancient, very heavily cratered surfaces. These are very old, geologically inactive systems. But there are important exceptions in the Saturn system that have been the subject of a tremendous amount of study. Most of what we know about Saturn's moons, very little comes from studies with telescopes, with the exception of studies of Titan. Titan is just big enough 
to begin to resolve from ground-based telescopes, from the Hubble Space Telescope, using adaptive optics, for example, from the ground. Most of the moons are too small. All we can do is see them and trace their orbits, notice their brightnesses, but that's about it. Maybe changes in brightness because they might have surface markings that are rotating in and out of view. So most of the details we've learned about the Saturn moon systems can only have come from spacecraft that have gone to Saturn. Primarily, we've learned a great deal about them from the Voyager spacecraft, which flew by Saturn in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And of course, our knowledge about the planet has exploded tremendously since 2004, when the Cassini spacecraft dropped into orbit around Saturn, where it continues orbiting to this day, five years into its mission and still going strong, making passes by all of the Saturn system moons, imaging the planet, imaging the rings. It's been a, what we've learned in the last few years has simply been remarkable. A lot of what we're going to be talking about today we have learned primarily from, what, from the last few years of the Cassini mission. Here's a, a nice little family portrait of the larger moons of, of, of Saturn. These are all sort of put together here to make them easy to see. It shows you the Titan really is kind of the 800-pound gorilla of the Saturnians, of the, of, of the, of the, the Saturnian system. It contains more than 90% of the mass of everything, including the rings. Uh, the rest of them, again, these are all bigger than about 200 kilometers per second. The two smallest of these, Hyperion and Phoebe, are less than 300 kilometers a second, so they're kind of irregular in shape. But all the rest of them are, for the most part, mostly spherical in shape. And you'll notice how the size jump from Titan down is very quick. So most of these are relatively small bodies. They probably are mostly ice, or, or certainly a mix of rock and ice. The densest of these are Titan and Enceladus currently, although some of these look like they're going to be subject to updating their densities as well as we get better measurements of their masses. Well, the Saturn moon system is fascinating. In fact, they're, they're probably the most varied moon system in the solar system. It, it beats the, the Jupiter moon system hands down for diversity and interest. This, unfortunately, is a class, or fortunately or unfortunately, is a class about life. If we were teaching 161, we'd have a whole lecture on just the moons. But today I want to concentrate on two of these moons. And, and here's a, an absolutely beautiful picture from Cassini. Cassini's just been snapping pictures like a madman for the last five years. And it's, it's keep going strong. As a consequence, we get these wonderful pairings in the Saturn system. It's a fairly tightly packed system. This is a beautiful superposition of seeing Enceladus and Titan together in the sky as viewed by, by Cassini. I have to say that one of the things about Cassini, other than the scientific output, is the pictures are, are simply phenomenal. The imaging cameras that are being carried on Cassini are far and away the best imaging cameras we've ever launched into space. And if, if you get a chance, go to the Cassini website, especially for a project called Cyclops, C-I-C-L-O-P-S, which is the Cassini imager. Uh, it's just a never-ending source of wonder, the, the beauty of the system. Um, just scientific stuff aside, it is the most beautiful system in our solar system. The Celadus was known for a long time to be the brightest object in the solar system. It's immediately seen to be a very highly reflective surface, what we call a very high albedo. As a consequence, people had the idea that it was probably covered in relatively fresh ice. It does not take very long, geologically or astronomically speaking, for fresh ices to get this patina of dark crud. And in fact, if we look at most of the Saturn moons, they are covered with just that kind of patina of dark crud that we saw on the big Jupiter moons like, Galilei, uh, like uh, Callisto and Ganymede. When we got a really close look at it on the first pass with Voyager, it was kind of from far away, but it looked like it didn't have as heavily a cratered surface and confirmed that it was an extremely bright ice ball. 
But it was only with Cassini that we really got a good series of close-up looks. In fact, we've flown within a few tens of kilometers of the surface in the last couple of years. This has been become a subject of intense inquiry. The first thing you noticed about Enceladus is that the surface is pretty smooth, especially down here in the southern hemisphere. There are very few impact craters, although you can see them up here. But a lot of the impact cratering has been wiped out by this grooved terrain. There's a lot of tectonic features on this. You see scarps and grooves. You see various of these high ridges and low valleys. This is a sign of a considerable amount of geological activity. And the fact that the surface has pretty much been wiped clean tells you it's relatively recent vintage, geologically speaking. We're talking about tens of millions of years to hundreds of millions of years. One of the other things that was found is Cassini passed by one of its early passes. Cassini carries on board a mass spectrometer, so it can pick up any stray elements that are coming past and sort of whiff the gases it might be flying through, however terribly tenuous. And one of the things that was noticed right away when flying by, Cassini, by, by Enceladus was they got a whiff of water vapor. Now, this had been expected for a long time because there's the moon Enceladus is inside of that thin, wispy E-ring that we mentioned before. And there were two different ideas as to what was going on. Maybe the E-ring was some debris. Maybe there was a big collision on Enceladus and it punched a whole bunch of ice up in there and that ice settled into a ring and Enceladus is kind of just rolling through it. The other much more radical idea was that the ice was coming off of Enceladus itself and feeding the ring. And in fact, that's exactly the latter that turns out to be the case. During one of the first passes, so the first passes were imaging the planet from the front side, taking pictures of the terrain according to the mission plan. And a couple of things popped out. First was this water vapor observation that was very tantalizing. It just caught a whiff of water vapor. It's very clear from the surface. It's very, very bright. We're looking at very fresh ices, which means stuff has been coming up recently. But what really caught people's attention were these sort of streaks down here on the southern hemisphere of the planet that I'm outlining with my fingers. Now, these look slightly blue. This has been computer enhanced in color to bring the contrast up because it's really hard to see features on a bright white ball. They called them the tiger stripes, and they really caught people's attention because the tiger stripes were strongest in the, in the smoothest terrains. So there was a series of observations that were made and planning, planning to sort of get an idea of what was going on the planet looking closer and closer at it, but all the targeting originally was done with the sunlit side because the dark side doesn't really tell you a whole much. This is a nice close-up of the surface of Enceladus, which shows this idea of repaving. Notice that the crisscrosses cross the craters, not the other way around. These are ancient craters that are being steadily filled in by fresh snowy ices, and there's even some sort of streaking, this sort of scarping and cracking on top of this shows you that there's still geological activity going on after the major impacts. But the real surprise came during a series of observations where they wanted to observe Enceladus backlit by the sun. When you're passing around the back night side of Enceladus, they wanted to get a view of the, of the, of the limb of the planet to get an idea if, in fact, this water vapor ice was, was coming off of a water vapor atmosphere. What they saw was, in my opinion, one of the most stunning pictures ever seen from the Cassini mission. There's the tiger stripes, and there are these gigantic fountains of material coming up out of them and spraying out into space. The volume of material is, in fact, enough to explain the contents of the E-ring and the covering, a lot of the covering of the planet in fresh ices. They're called, very quickly, were immediately given the name the Fountains of Enceladus. And it was this discovery that completely galvanized the study of Enceladus in, in the system. The real target of, this, of the 
Cassini mission of the moons was Titan. Titan was the one that was interesting because it had the big atmosphere. But when the fountains were discovered about two and a half years ago on Enceladus, it immediately changed the game. Here's a, a, a heavily computer-enhanced picture showing you the fairly large, fairly substantial volume of stuff coming up off of here. What we're seeing is what's called cryovolcanism. Okay, we don't really think of volcanism as, as like a volcanism on the Earth, volcanism on, on Venus, volcanism on Io, the belching up of melted silicates, boiling, you know, liquid rock. But we don't, aren't used to thinking of, until we really got to the outer solar system, is that ices melting, ices form the rock of the outer solar system as a way of thinking about it. The bodies of the outer moons of the solar system are mostly ices which means the analog of melting rock into magma is to melt ice into liquid, and then that liquid flows out. We've seen evidence of these liquid flows filling stuff in already. We've seen it, for example, on Europa that smoothed out the surface. So this idea that there could, in fact, be a kind of ice volcanism, hence the name cryovolcanism, was a somewhat new idea. It was first triggered in minds by what we saw on the planet Triton, or the planet Triton, the moon Triton around Neptune where Voyager 2 saw cryovolcanism, but the liquid there was not water, it was liquid nitrogen. But seeing ice cryovolcanism on, on Enceladus was, to some people, a confirmation of something they thought should be happening, to others a great surprise. It's one of the three volcanically active moons in the entire solar system, the other being Io and Triton around Neptune. What we're seeing is water and other volatiles basically turning liquid and blasting out like geysering out of the surface through cracks in the surface of Enceladus. Now, where does Enceladus get its heat? It's a tiny little moon. And the answer, once again, is tidal heating. Okay, it's too small to have held on to residual heat. It's probably being done by tidal heating. In this case, it's a combination of tides from Saturn. These are all fairly close in. But there's also a tug coming from the moon Dione. Dione is one of the bigger moons of, of Saturn, and it orbits further out from, from Enceladus in such a way that Enceladus create, com, completes two orbits around Saturn for every exact one orbit of Dione. So twice in its orbit, it gets a little tug from the moon Dione. As a consequence, that extra tug gives you a little bit of that extra sort of squeeze and stretch effect that gives you the tidal heating of the moon. Turns out, however, if you do the energy budget, unlike the case for Europa and Io, where we had plenty of tidal energy available just from Jupiter and the resonances with the moons in the intergalilean system to do all the heating, in Enceladus, tidal heating alone can't do it. And so people are now talking about there having to be some additional assist from radioactive decay inside the moon. That was not expected because they thought the moon was mostly made of ices, but the close passes of Cassini spacecraft and subsequent studies over the last few years has shown that Enceladus is somewhat more massive than we had expected and therefore denser. And so there's a much more substantial rocky portion of Enceladus than had been previously suspected, and that rocky material will have a load of radioactive material, which, again, the numbers are still on the edge, but it seems to be able to provide enough that with tidal heating may explain the amount of heating we need for the subsurface heat. So what happens is this tidal heating plus radioactive decay melts the subsurface water, it then geysers up, pressurizes, geysers up through the cracks. The weak gravity of Enceladus is such that it basically blows off the planet. You get this ice plume coming out. Some of it falls back on the surface and snows on the surface and keeps the ices nice and shiny white. The rest of it, actually the bulk of it, probably escapes from the gravity of Enceladus, 
flies out into and becomes part of the or starts orbiting around the planet Saturn and forms, in fact, the faint E-ring. So the picture that's emerged, and this is probably the favored picture, although there are alternatives that have been proposed, is you've got tidal heating in the rock, the hot rock begins to melt the ice from below, and you get these pockets of liquid. Since the pockets of liquid are trapped in the ice, as the liquid builds up, the pressure builds up. As the pressure builds up and the temperature, you can actually build up liquid water at temperatures that are approaching pretty close to just above freezing, meaning we're getting sort of room temperature, earth-like temperatures, buried deep here inside the ices. However, the ice is fairly cracked and crazed. Remember, this planet's being squeezed and stretched by tides and from Dione and tides from, from, from Saturn, and so the ice is going to basically be brittle and crack and craze. Eventually, you break your way through, you pressurize through, the, through a crack in the ice, and you suddenly find yourself encountering vacuum, and poof! You flash the liquid water out on the surface. The liquid water drops r dramatically in pressure. That drop in pressure basically flash freezes it. And so you get this plume of ice. And so you get the surface ice up here. is probably water ice at about 77 degrees Kelvin because Enceladus has got such a shiny surface, it's much colder than you would expect for a darker surface out there from sunlight. And so you get this water vapor plus ice particle volcano going poof out. It gets ejected fast enough, gives you an idea of what the underlying energy is like, and it's basically able to escape from the gravity of the planet. And lo and behold, here is this stunning picture from just last year, taken looking back as, as Saturn is getting closer and closer to its equinox, and so the lineup between the ring and the sun gets bigger, looking back through the backlit rings, and you can see here is the moon Enceladus, here is the body of the E-ring, and you can see the fountains incorporating themselves into the stuff of the E-ring. Here is a ring being made, in, this fuzzy, faint ring being made in situ, and we're watching it being made as we speak. So the idea that Enceladus and the E-ring were in fact related was in fact correct. The E-ring is being built by the water ices being blown out of the geysers, out of the fountains of Enceladus. But the really interesting thing occurs that, okay, we found these fountains. What are you going to do? You're going to watch them from a distance. Well, the fact that the, the onboard chemical spectrometer was able to get a whiff of water, they retargeted the spacecraft. They, they fired the rockets and changed its orbit. So it made a series of flights through the plumes. So they decided instead of just watching the plumes from a distance, we're going to take a risk. They did first some calculations of how much junk might be in those plumes to fly the Cassini spacecraft through the plume. First one they flew at a distance, the latter one they flew within a few tens of kilometers of the surface, right up through the Tiger Stripe zone. So they really are, this is wonderful thing about the Cassini spacecraft is how easily configurable it was. It has enough fuel on board to be able to pull this off. The results from those passes are, are going on. In fact, there's another pass through the through close by um, Enceladus coming up in the next few days. So this has become a, an area of tremendous concentration. What they've found can be summarized as follows. The first of all is that the water volume coming out and the amount of heating is suggested to many of the people who are studying this that there could in fact be a global liquid ocean beneath the ices of Enceladus. Whether it's one big ocean or whether a number of larger oceans are still being kind of worked out. So we're not quite in the, in the Europa zone, but we're starting to see structures that look like Europa, an under ice massive ocean. Furthermore, the ice particles that have been analyzed in the last few passes by Cassini showed an extra surprise. It wasn't just water ice, they found signs of salts. 
So you can only get mineral salts dissolved in a fairly large scale water, not just simply little puddles of melted water in the ice is not going to pull a lot of salts up. You need a lot of standing water for a long time to leach the salts out of rock. So this is another piece of evidence that the salty water may be saying we're dealing with a large mass of standing water, not just little transient bubbles that blow out and go away to be replaced by another. They also found evidence of fairly simple organic molecules, meaning carbon-based molecules, and they found carbon-bearing grains, actually a chunk of stuff, coming up out of this. So we're starting to see some of the prerequisites we want for life. We have a source of heat, tidal heating in the interior. We have standing liquid water, probably. There certainly is an evidence of either very, very large pools or perhaps even, as some people claim, perhaps as much as an entirely global liquid ocean. We're seeing carbon organics, carbon-based organics. So those are the basic prerequisites we need for life. And one extra bit, this liquid standing water is below the ice surface, and therefore it's going to be shielded from UV radiation by this layer of ice. So we have four of the primary prerequisites for the conditions conducive to life. Now, just because you've got the ingredients doesn't mean you're going to basically life is going to emerge. We also need time, and we don't know how long Enceladus has been doing this particular trick. We know it took Earth about 100 million years. Maybe things go a little slower on Enceladus. One of the things that's sort of dampening this a little bit is one of the more recent passes, in addition to finding salty water, found ammonia in the water. An admixture of ammonia and water will lower the freezing temperature of the water, which means you could be dealing with a much colder water. The presence of ammonia may, in fact, retard carbon chemistry. So that's one of the things that makes people sort of step back a little bit. But that's an awful lot of tech marks down the requirements for a life list to have been checked off in one shot. So people are now beginning to talk about Enceladus very seriously as a place we should go back to and examine carefully to see if, in fact, life could arose, rise there. It's a small world. It's a very, very different world than we've seen so far. Here's a, a, I just throw this picture up because it's so cool. Um, it shows you, it gives you an idea of how small Enceladus is. This is a scale of Enceladus against the picture of the United Kingdom. That's England, Scotland, and Ireland. So this is a very, very small little, little moon. It just happens to be spherical because it's relatively, probably relatively, um, differentiated inside, although there's arguments about that. It seems to be reasonably spherical, but it's mostly ice and rock. So, again, we're, we're finding the evidence. We're, you know, we're going to take the, the approach that NASA says, follow the water. If you're going to look for life, follow the liquid water. There's lots and lots of water in the solar system, but most of it's frozen solid. So whenever you find a place where there is liquid water, that's a place where we're going to concentrate on for the, surface, for the search for life. We simply don't know yet. So this is certainly an area that it's very much going to be a next generation kind of problem because it's, it's very hard to get out to Saturn. It takes a long time. Any questions about Enceladus before we go on? This is just a fascinating little place. Okay. In that case, let's continue along to the next moon. This is what people really wanted to study when they went to the Saturn system. Enceladus just kind of distracted them because it was new and, and brand new and interesting. Titan is the largest moon of Saturn. It's the only giant moon in the Saturn system. And it has a distinction which has been known for a very long time from studies from the Earth that it is the only giant moon in the solar system with a heavy atmosphere. It took a long time to get the numbers, but we realized not only was it a heavy atmosphere, it's actually got more of an atmosphere in terms of atmosphere pressure than the Earth. Not in terms of total mass, but it's actually one and a half atmospheres worth on the surface. 
Titan's a pretty big moon. Its, its radius is about 2,575 kilometers. So it's 5,000 kilometers across. It's bigger than our moon. It's got a density, mean density of about 1.9 grams per cc, which is starting to tend towards that 3 grams per cc. So it tells you it's a rock and ice mixture, but the balance is tipped in favor of rock. It's hard to say where the breakpoint is. Roughly around 1.5 grams per cc. If you're above 1.5 grams per cc, but under 3, you're rock with ice. If you're under 1.5, you're kind of ice with rock. That sounds like a, it's, it's a distinction with a difference. Now, Titan is cold. It's out there 10 AUs roughly, 9.5 AUs from the sun, so Titan's going to be a pretty cold place. So even though it's a small body with a low gravity, the molecules are moving slowly because it's cold, and so it's able to hold on to an atmosphere. And in fact, it can retain a heavy atmosphere of nitrogen and methane. No carbon dioxide on this world. Or if there is, it's all frozen out. But nitrogen and methane are still gases at these kinds of low temperatures. It's one of the things you've got to watch out for in that gas speed versus distance from the sun plot that tells you, or temperature, surface temperature plot that tells you whether you can hold onto an atmosphere. When you start getting real cold, some of your gases start to freeze out into solids. So they no longer, they're held onto only because they kind of fall to the ground as ice. It's kind of different than a gas. Now, what's really interesting is if you look at the amount of gas pressure in this atmosphere, the pressure is pretty high. As you raise the pressure on a cold gas, turns out for methane and for ethane, I forgot to put the word ethane on there, you push it into the triple phase zone, where you can have stable presence of both gaseous methane, liquid methane, and solid methane. Just like on the Earth, the gas pressure on the Earth is high enough that you can have solid, liquid, and vapor water. So we're seeing methane on Titan playing the same kind of role that water plays on the Earth. So this is just an illustration of that. You know, Titan is a small body. Its mass is way smaller than the Earth or Mars, but it's way out here where the surface temperature is a little around 100 degrees Kelvin. So methane is still a gas. Water is a complete ice. It's frozen out. Nitrogen is a gas, but carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide are an ice, so they've dropped. So the only two gases you can hang on to are methane and nitrogen. And sure enough, what do we find? Nitrogen and methane. Nothing else because it's not that cold. So what we find is Titan has a very dense nitrogen and methane atmosphere. In round numbers, and again, these numbers are somewhat difficult to measure, between 90 and 97% of the atmosphere of, of Titan is nitrogen, followed by about 1.6, you know, roughly 2% of methane. We also find traces of argon and hydrocarbons like ethane. In addition, this thing is a very cold and dense atmosphere. The average temperature on the planet is around 94 degrees Kelvin. That's 290 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. The atmospheric pressure is pretty high. It's about 1.6 atmospheres, so that's Earth atmospheres. So that's a lot of weight. That's a lot of atmosphere in here. It's also a kind of a smoggy covering here. Here's a nice, very nice picture of, of Titan backlit by Saturn as it's sort of moving in front of Saturn here. You can see the shadow of the rings here on top of this picture. This kind of icky brown color is exactly that. It's smog. What you're seeing is basically what we used to refer to as photochemical smog on Earth. It's nitrogen compounds interacting with sunlight, forming nitrogen oxides, and some really nasty photochemical aerosols called tholins. If you look in a smoggy day in a place like Los Angeles, Bombay, uh, you know, any large city in the world, that sort of brown ick you get in the sky, 
That's basically photochemistry of nitrogen and other gunk forming complex organics, including a handful, luckily, of, of not too much tholins. Much more tholins out here because it's much more rich in organics. Now, we can see through some of this haze if we pick the right wavelengths in the infrared. We can kind of see through it, just like you can see through fog if you pick the right wavelengths. And so what we see is on the, in addition to sort of this high altitude haze at the very top of the atmosphere, when you look down through it, you see clouds in the atmosphere and weather. Those clouds are made of droplets of methane and ethane. Just like on the Earth, the clouds are made of droplets of water. When we actually can peer through the clouds with infrared cameras, and it's looking through kind of a hazy atmosphere, so the pictures are not as clean and crisp as we see on Enceladus, we find that the surface of Titan is very, very young. There are very few impact craters, and in fact, there are significant signs of liquid flows, drainage channels, and gigantic lakes on the surface of the, of the, of the moon. And these have been expected, and so finding them was actually a, a, great, a great thrill. We see dark, smooth plains, which turn out to be so shown up here, sort of in this upper portion of the picture. Those turn out to be methane mud flats. There's rugged highlands. You can see a fair amount of terrain relief. There are vast dune fields I'll show a picture of in a second. You see these sort of dendritic drainage channels that look like looking at something flowing down into this low, low, low basin here. We find a couple of large impact basins, so Titan is not immune to meteor strikes. And we find, in fact, standing lakes of standing liquid, liquid methane and ethane on the, planet, on the surface of this moon. I keep wanting to call it a planet because, you know, it really is a dwarf planet at some fundamental level. All it had to be doing was orbiting the sun instead of being formed around Saturn. It would be pretty much a dwarf planet all by itself. One of the big breakthroughs in the study of Titan came with the Cassini mission, carried on board a European spacecraft called Huygens. It was named for um, a man by the name of Christian Huygens, who was an early, um, oh gosh, I'm going to get the right century, 18th century, late, 19, late 17th, early 18th century astronomer, who really discovered the rings of Saturn. So it was named in his honor. It's about 1.8 meters across. It was released from the Cassini spacecraft on Christmas Day of, of 2004, went on an intercept trajectory to the, to the moon Titan, entered the atmosphere on January 15th, deployed a parachute, took a slow two-and-a-half-hour parachute descent, taking pictures the whole way down through the atmosphere, finally landing on the surface, squelching down into kind of this big sort of methane mud flat. There was some worry early on that it might splash down into a methane-ethane sea, so it was actually made able to float, if necessary. And it lasted for two hours on the ground, actually probably lasted longer than that. The two hours was limited by the fact that the Cassini spacecraft had to suddenly turn back and was getting blocked by Titan because as it flew past, Titan with the Huygens probe turned away from the spacecraft and the moon got between the spacecraft and the, uh, and the ground station. When, of course, it came back, the cold had finally got taken its toll and the system had shut down. So this thing was only expected to last... They were thinking maybe it would survive impact, maybe not, but it lasted for a full two hours transmitting data and pictures. Uh, color picture on the left, color composite showing the sort of smoggy day look, and a color enhanced black and white version of that. You can see the horizon in the distance. You can see all these pebbles that look like rocks, and there's kind of a sort of a squelchy looking flat plane out between these. This is the first real look that any human being has ever had of a truly alien world. Those rocks are water ice. And those flats in between, what looks like sandy soil, is in fact a sand of probably fine water ice particles and methane. 
basically forming a kind of a semi-squelchy mud. When the spacecraft squelched down into the mud, there was a sudden whiff of methane as the heat from the spacecraft actually melted the methane into a gas. It was picked up by the gas analyzers that were carried by the spacecraft. This picture just to me, just never ceases to amaze every time I've seen it because we were really, again, we were really looking at a truly alien world. This is some place that is totally not like the Earth. When we look out at, at, Met, at Titan, we can peer through with radar. There was a, there's a cloud-penetrating radar system on Cassini that's allowed us to look down and map out the surface. And Again, it's, we're building it up over time because it's just making multiple passes. But pretty clearly, we're seeing a lot of terrain features. We see highlands. We see the lowlands. And one of the things that was really kind of cool is there are these vast dune fields that have appeared on the, on the, on the moon Titan. Uh, these dune fields are made out of ices or, or of sand, but the sand is composed of water ice and complex organics. So again, you know, if you will, water is sand on Titan because it's completely frozen at 270-odd degrees below zero Fahrenheit. So what plays the role of water? And that answer turns out to be methane and, of course, to a lesser degree, ethane. We're still argue, people are still arguing about the ethane mix, but it's pretty clear that methane is the dominant of the two chemicals. Methane plays exactly the same role on Titan that water plays on the Earth. It can exist stably in all three phases, solid, liquid, and gas at the high pressures of the Titan atmosphere and the combination of low temperatures. It's, it goes into that triple phase zone in the methane phase diagram. This means that when the methane basically evaporates from the surface, it goes up into the high altitudes, the temperature drops, and it condenses into methane clouds. These clouds can actually go along and actually snow or even rain methane and ethane onto the surface. That can, uh, the methane or ethane rain can then pool on the surface, flow down drainage channels, erode the water ice sand out of the way just like water eroding a gully on the earth, and collecting in low basins where they actually can form lakes, which are, which are standing liquid methane and ethane. Now, when people went out, when we first went out to Titan, when people were wondering what the Huygens probe was going to land in, we knew there were these patternings of light and dark on the moon from the images. And so people thought that those large dark was that the planet was actually covered by vast oceans of liquid methane and ethane. And there was a real worry that the Huygens probe was either going to splash down or sink straight into the ocean. And what we found is, in fact, most of those large dark regions are mudflats or probably just vast plains. There is not a lot of standing liquid methane. In fact, the first few passes with the radar by the planet didn't find any standing liquid methane or ethane at all. And people were wondering, maybe we had this wrong. But then when the spacecraft passes begin to fly over the poles of Titan, that's when they started getting the smooth radar returns from the surface of a liquid body. And they found some very large lakes, not on the equators, but down on the poles of the planet, where its conditions apparently are just right. Some of these are as large as the Caspian Sea or the Great Lakes like Lake Superior here on the Earth. These are massive pools of these. Um, brand new picture, not too many months old now. This is one of the very large, I forget the name of it, it's Lacus something, down on the um, southern pole of, of, Nept of uh, Titan. This uh, picture is not uh, taken with uh, cameras. This is now using radar imaging. So rough terrain, sandy stuff, rocky stuff, although I shouldn't say rock, it's really water ice boulders, uh, will produce a very, very rough scattered return from the radar, and just like on you know, ground return radar, whereas liquids will produce a very quick high reflectivity return. I'm sorry, high, I'm sorry, very low specular, you get a lot of absorption, so they appear dark in these pictures. So you get very smooth terrains, are very dark, 
very jumbled terrain turns out to be very scattering. So you get bright where there's jumbled stuff and then darkness where there's liquid. And you can just see the shoreline. You can see the, uh, the drainage channels filling into this place. This thing is the size of Lake Superior. <laughs> and it's filled with liquid methane and liquid ethane. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what can you say? But just, wow. <laughs> There's a lake of methane and ethane on Titan. This is, this is a completely alien place. So, we have a lot of things that you would think were sort of in the list of, of prerequisites for life. It's clearly geologically active, so there's internal heat, probably from tidal heating and some radioactivity. It's a fairly big body. We have a stable atmosphere, although albeit a stable atmosphere of nitrogen and methane rather than of nitrogen and carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide's all frozen out in this system. We have a high enough pressure that we actually have pushed a liquid solvent, methane and ethane, into the triple point, basically into the point where you can have all three phases. And remember a couple days ago, we talked about the requirements for life. We said there are other chemical solvents other than liquid water, and, and two of them that turned out to be of interest were liquid methane and liquid ethane. It has very high heat capacity. It has the ability to dissolve organic compounds. In fact, it may be a very good one. The problem is it's extremely cold, and very low temperatures don't make for the kinds of organic chemistry we're used to here on the Earth. So... It has abundant organics, so it has all those things we want to look for in a place that might harbor life. It's just too freaking cold. Or maybe we just haven't imagined how organic chemistry can work at temperatures that cold. It has an atmosphere which is capable of setting up weather, although it's weather in methane-ethane. So we have an ability to have gas exchange between the ground and the atmosphere. You have a self-regulating atmosphere. Just like on the Earth, we have a regulated carbon cycle, carbon dioxide cycle. There's a methane cycle in the atmosphere of Titan. So it actually provides, if you will, a stable environment, a stable planetary environment. The atmosphere acts as UV shielding. Now, the UV radiation is being absorbed by those organics in the upper atmosphere. That's why we see that smog haze layer. That's a UV blanket. So we've got an awful lot of the pieces we want for life. We're just hung up on the fact that it's so cold. So there's two lines of thought. The dominant one is that we don't want to treat Titan as a place necessarily where life, however really weird alien life, might have actually emerged. But in fact, it resembles more and more a kind of a prebiotic Earth. Now, the big difference, of course, here is that we don't have carbon dioxide. Right? The prebiotic Earth had a heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere. On, on, on Titan, it's just too cold for, for, for carbon dioxide. It's part of the sand. So it's an interesting place we want to go back to and study because it tells us what a pre it might be a good place to look at what is a prebiotic world like. Can we begin to find the kinds of self-organizing chemistry? Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we should go back to the laboratory and start asking, can I get complex organic chemistry? Can I get metabolic-like cycles or catalytic-type cycles? I'm not talking about full-blown bacterial life at this point. You know, remember the, one of the things in cell biology was there were these chemical networks we can set up, you know, Krebs cycles, Calvin cycles. They're, they're, they're basically catalytic chemical cycles. Can you get cal, 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 sorry, catalytic chemical cycles, this is my TA, catalytic chemical cycles going on in liquid methane as a, or liquid ethane, as a, like we do know we can get going in liquid water. We don't know the answer to that question. So people are now starting to say, well, here's an environment Let's start going back to the laboratory and seeing if we can find such chemical reactions. Maybe there is a class of chemical reactions, a class of organic chemistry, 
that can go on here, and that could be like, you know, like metabolism first model. So this may be a laboratory for looking at the origins of life, although pretty wacky. Some people have actually gone so far as to actually speculate that there might really be life-life on Titan, but they want to put it either below the surface, again, they sort of want to invoke... Once a good idea comes along, people start looking for it everywhere, the idea that there might be subsurface warm pockets of liquid water. There's going to be a lot of water ice on here, but it's mostly ice. What if down deep in the interior you get pockets of liquid water that are roughly room temperature, then you get more terrestrial-like life going on. So let's not worry about all this liquid methane, liquid ethane chemistry. Let's just do good old-fashioned liquid water chemistry. I don't know about that. It's really hard to judge how, whether those ideas... Those ideas are pure speculation, but that's one way you could play the game of putting life on Titan. But it kind of becomes the puddles and oases below the surface. And there's a whole lot more going on on the surface. The other thing that people have thought of is that you have a big meteor strike on the planet and you temporarily melt a puddle, you actually will produce a gigantic water sea. But again, it seems like an awful short time. One of the lessons of life on Earth is you've got to give it time. It took 100 million years for life to emerge on the Earth once liquid water appeared. You're not going to have 100 million years with a meteor strike. So... We're thinking about going back. People are thinking about crazy stuff for a 2030 mission. Here's a cartoon of a, a Titan balloon that would actually float a probe around to visit different places. But the real interesting thing is, in the distant future, our sun is slowly growing brighter as it runs out of hydrogen. Eventually, as we see a little bit tomorrow, we talk about habitable zones. The habitable zone moves out. What will happen when the habitable zone gets out to 10 astronomical units, when the sun is growing into a red giant star? Well, the conditions on Titan could very briefly be as warm as they are on the early Earth. The carbon dioxide will be released back into the atmosphere. The water vapor will begin to begin released back into the atmosphere of Titan if it doesn't get too warm and can't hold on to it. So now we're going to get into a tug-of-war, but maybe in the distant future, Titan could become another place where life might get a new start, like life got a start on the young Earth. So this is where why Titan is so fascinating to people now, is it may not represent a, an abode of life, but a sign of what the prerequisites and the pre-life may have looked like on a planetary body. Any questions? All right. Okay, so I will see you all tomorrow.